Hello everyone, back from the dead, just in time for Halloween, it's Conservation Realist episode 14. I'm Dr. Tara Sayuri-Witty and I've had some time management issues in that I've had too little time for everything I've been needing to manage lately. And since this is my fun side project, but it's a side project that takes quite a bit of work, it's been pushed into dormancy for a bit. So it feels good to get an episode out. (laughs) I appreciate you still being with me, and I am very excited to share this interview with Dr. Lucy Keith-Giana and Diana Sek of the African Aquatic Conservation Fund, or AACF. They primarily work in Senegal, though they also are very involved in several regional efforts in West and Central Africa as well. I've never been to that part of Africa. I've unfortunately barely been to Africa at all, but I dream of getting to spend time there, um, perhaps as a visitor of AACF one day. We'll see. And that's actually how I came to meet Lucy in the first place at the World Marine Mammal Conference in Barcelona in 2019. I had asked folks in my network about connecting with people in West Africa because I sort of had my eye there as the next region I'd like to do some work in, kind of a a new region for me after being based in Asia for so long, and I was pointed in Lucy's direction. And conveniently, she ended up actually being the moderator for the Human Dimension session in which I was presenting. And though in this conversation, she shared that she felt so embarrassed by what happened, and you'll get to hear it in the interview itself, no spoilers here, I want to emphasize that it was absolutely not her fault, not not embarrassing to her at all, and that I was really genuinely glad that she was the moderator so that I had a chance to chat with her um, before and after the session. And, you know, it was a a memorable way (laughs) for both of us to first meet. So when I approached her uh, for this podcast, she kindly agreed, despite being remarkably busy and encountering some quote-unquote strange strandings that kept her extra busy. She also requested that her research assistant, Diana, join, and of course, I was more than happy for her to join this conversation. Um, So... Let's hear a clip from The Green Touch by Somo Twin, Zian Tet, and Min Min from Myanmar. And let's dive in. Enjoy. Jala how are you doing? We're good. We just had a three-day weekend and um, for the holiday, the end of Ramadan holiday, and we were just saying we could use another three days. <laughs> <laughs> Yep. Yeah. <laughs> well, for those who observe, it's actually not quite a, it's not a big vacation though, if you're having the cooking and everything, right? So yeah, this one did all the cooking. Oh, yeah. <laughs> He's a lucky recipient. Oh, <laughs> yeah. wow. That's nice. Yeah. 
Well, thank you for um, for your time today. I've, as I've mentioned, so Dan, I met Lucy at a conference, the last conference I went to in Barcelona in 2019, and um, I I remember people telling me, "Oh, you should try to meet Lucy because I I was um, so interested in learning more about work in West Africa because I've never been there." But from what I've heard, there's some interesting things going on with with bycatch, for example. Um, so yeah, that's how I met Lucy, and I'm looking forward to hearing more about what you and the with African Aquatic Conservation Foundation. Fun, yeah. Yeah. fun, fun. Sorry, I always get fun in foundation. Um, I'm really interested to hear more about what AACF does. So thanks for your time. No problem. Yeah. Well, thank you for being so generous. But the, the true story is, unfortunately, um, I was the moderator and they gave me the wrong time slot for her talk. And I tried to cut her off because I thought she had a speed talk, which is only five minutes, but she had a full talk. Right. And so I got up like and started to get out and she's like, I have a full talk. And I was so horrified. I just wanted the floor to open up and oh, no. swallow me home. Well, it and wasn't your fault at all. <laughs> no, it was, no, and and um, Francis apologized later. Although I don't think it was her fault either. It was just literally someone typed up the wrong thing on the piece of paper in front of me. But anyway, <laughs> I, I have not moderated since. Are <laughs> you? Well, you know the truth of it is, I was actually originally given a speed talk, and I was uh, okay. And then they changed it. Well, I changed it because I know the conference. I know the human dimension session. I know I'm one of the few people actually doing human dimensions work in the field. I uh, I organized or I was co-chair of the human dimensions part of the conference some years prior. And I was like, I know this is a full talk. Like I know. <laughs> and I was talking to Louisa Panampala in, in, in Malaysia and she was like, you should email them. You deserve a full talk. I know your work is good. So I was like, I don't know. She's like, you should email them. And I did. And they were like, oh, okay. So, you know, it had been a speed talk at one point and then they changed it. Uh, and it turned out it was one of the few actually human dimensions talks. So I'm glad I, I fought for that. Yeah. Um, well, yeah. <laughs> it was, yes. But Barcelona was a nice conference. It was and, a nice conference. <laughs> the last non-hybrid conference we'll probably ever see. But, uh, Anyway, <laughs> I think hybrid's good, but it was it. There was a big learning curve in Florida. You're you're lucky you missed oh. it. <laughs> oh really? Okay, okay. I'm yeah. <laughs> so um, I you know I'm very kind of on a very superficial way familiar with the work you you're doing over there with AACF, and I follow the Facebook page and everything. Um, but I'd love to hear more about what you as an organization do. Sure. Okay. Well, um, so we started in 2014 and it, the organization was basically born out of my husband and I both um, doing research, me with marine mammals and him with turtles. And um, we were in the U.S. at the time. I was finishing my Ph.D., which I did very late in life, and um, working for another nonprofit, and just it wasn't working well. And so we decided that we just needed to start our own, where we were sort of more in control of our destiny and our funding. And um, 
So, you know, I said, I think we can do this. <laughs> um, I was a bit naive back then. You know, that was before I spent a year and a half of my life after my dissertation, getting this organization up and running and filing nonprofit paperwork and understanding nonprofit accounting and um, a lot of trial and error while also trying to get back to field work. So it was um, a bit of a baptism by fire, but I'm I'm really glad that we did it. Um, we felt that there was sort of a void in aquatic wildlife in Africa. Not to say that there aren't, um, there are quite a few sea turtle programs around in West and Central Africa. <clears throat> Not many marine mammal people. I mean, I can count them on probably two hands for sure. Uh, the number of organizations that that are doing marine mammal work in Western Central Africa, um, and we just felt like you know it was time for us to sort of take control of what we really wanted to do. So we we set it up, um, <clears throat> and um, it's grown a bit in the last few years. Um, we took on two researchers, um, one Sal Churchio, who does acoustics work primarily in Madagascar. Um, you know, Sal's an amazing researcher, um, really good scientist, but also he brings us the other side of the continent um, with his work in Madagascar. So um, that's nice. And he's now started some projects in Senegal as well. And then Dr. Angela Formia, who's a sea turtle person who we, um, both Tomas and I have known longer than we've known each other, in fact. Um, Tomas and Angela met each other many, many years ago when she came to a conference in Senegal for sea turtles. And then I met her when I first started working in Gabon in 2006 and we became friends. And so she um, joined us last year. Um, so it's it's a nice growth, really. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, so it's, it's, you know, we're still a small organization. We have probably, I don't know, less than 10 full-time employees. Um, but, uh, you know, we have people like Jonna, who's my research assistant, and Awa Wad, who's Tomas's research assistant, and Sal has several Malagasy um, research assistants as well. Um, so, yeah, I mean, you know, but we're still, we're still small. <laughs> yeah. Um, and what, what are the types of activities that you all do? So we have four programs, um, the African Manatee Program, uh, which is led by me, not surprisingly. <laughs> um, and that program um, does work in many countries, not just Senegal. Uh, my main projects have been for quite a while now um, trying to determine uh, populations of African manatees throughout their 21 country range, because when I first started working with African manatees um, back in 2006, I realized, you know, here's this species that lives in 21 countries. They're hard to see. Um, they're heavily hunted. Mm. Um, and we don't know how many there are. And there's this sort of guesstimate of 10,000, but we don't even know where distinct populations are. Mm. And um, it was actually one of my advisors, Bob Bondi, after my first couple of years in Africa, said to me, you know, Lucy, you could spend the next 35 years in a boat and not learn as much about manatees as you would doing genetics. And okay. I was like, yeah, but I'm terrible. I break, I'm, I'm clumsy. I break things in the lab. You don't want me in a lab. And he said, no, you, you're going to do this. So um, <laughs> that's what I ended up doing my PhD on. And he was right, of course. And uh, so... 
you know, my plan has been for some time to understand where these distinct populations are. And, and through my PhD work and some subsequent work, I've defined the first four, which encompass the whole range, but um, they're very large. And so, well, two are large. One is from coastal Senegal down to um, at least Guinea, Guinea, the country of Guinea, and then the other one starts in Cote d'Ivoire and goes all the way around the corner of Africa, if you will, and the Gulf of Guinea down through um, Gabon mm. and into the Congos. Wow. Those are enormous, and we, we do expect them to be broken into smaller populations once we get more samples from some of these mm -hmm. countries, but it's incredibly difficult to get those. So anyway, I, I digress. Um, so the African Manti program has the... The genetics aspect, um, I have a feeding ecology study because I found out early on that mantis don't just eat plants here. They also eat fish and mollusks, oh, which is okay. unlike any other serenian. Yeah. Um, they, reg they regularly eat them. I mean, there is some evidence that dugongs and even the Florida mantis occasionally will eat um, a mollusk or a fish remains, but here in Africa, they are targeting them as a food source. Wow. Um, and it's different based on each country. And then um, my other main project is a threat assessment study of um, that's focused in five countries. And that was sort of born out of the government people that I would go to and say, you know, you're not enforcing these laws. And they said, well, you can't prove to us how many mantis are really dying. Mm -hmm. So I said, okay, I will. <laughs> um, and so we went out, uh, myself and nine other colleagues, um, and started documenting every single mantis that dies in five countries. So wow. um, that's been a huge project. That was part of my Pew Marine Fellowship um, that I got in 2017. So so those are sort of the Manti program. There's other smaller things as well, um, an age determination study using ear bones and some other smaller projects as well, but those are the sort of bigger parts. Then we have the African Chelonian Institute, which is Tomas's program that is basically all African turtles. Um, and so his real love is freshwater turtles and tortoises, but he has a sea turtle part of that. Okay. Um, as well, and they're doing everything from uh, looking at illegal hunting of sea turtles, which is a huge problem here in central Senegal, mm -hmm. to uh, nest monitoring, um, etc. And then freshwater turtles in Africa are so um, poorly known that they're probably undiscovered species. And even for the known species, they don't know things like their entire distributions or, you know, their what they do, you know, how, what kind of food do they eat, etc. Um, and tortoises. So that's the African Chelonia Institute. Then with SAL, we created an African cetaceans program, um, which, uh, well, it somewhat exists, was starting at the same time SAL um, showed up because we had taken on a project with Atlanta Compact Dolphins, mm -hmm. um, which Jonna can tell you a lot more about than me. But um, and that was born out of the Barcelona conference. There was a meeting, you know, saying that it's one of the top five endangered dolphins in the world um, and we should be doing something. That was Tim Collins and Caroline Weir led that meeting. And then that quickly grew into the consortium for the conservation of the Atlantic Humpback Dolphin. Um, and we are the Senegal arm of that. So we lead the research for that species in Senegal. 
um, which is the photo ID um, acoustics and genetics work. Uh, but Sal, of course, then brought his own acoustics work um, with Madagascar and, and then has started an offshore large whale project here in, in Senegal. So that's African cetaceans. And the fourth project is the Senegal Stranding Network, which we administer and lead uh, myself, Tomas, and our colleague, Vim Mouillet, to document every stranded um, cetacean and uh, sea turtle in Senegal, which is a big job. Um, oh. And then Angela brought with her, Angela brought her with her, she's the lead for what we call the West African Sea Turtle program and she's more regional she's working primarily in gabon mm -hmm. ivory coast and equatorial guinea um but she sort of dovetails in there with tomas's african chilean institute in a more regional way so that's what oh. we're doing is that it <laughs> <laughs> i know someone asked me to take on shark work the other day and i said are you trying to kill me because honestly <laughs> anymore. <laughs> I know. I mean, once you get out there and start, I mean, just from my experience in parts of the Philippines and in Myanmar, where there's been very little research, the more you learn, you're like, well, no one's working on this. Someone's got to work on this. But then you also have to be realistic about <laughs> what can be done. And yeah, I mean, we, we get emails all the time from, you know, oh, can you help us with jellyfish? Can you help us with seahorses? And I'm like, you know, if you come here, I'd be extremely happy to introduce you to the people we work with, and you know, we even have a we even have a dormitory style office where with rooms where people can oh. stay. Um, but you know, we cannot take on those projects. We yeah. just have too much on our plate. Um, but no one's taken me up on it yet. Uh, but I wish they would because there is a lot to do here that's not being done. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. And um, Dion, I wanted to apologize. I called you Diana at the beginning, forgetting that it's right. gonna call. It. <laughs> um, but yeah, I'm uh, glad to correct that. So Diana, I'm interested, you know, how you came to know about AACF and how you started working with Lucy and the team. Oh, I was doing my master program in UCAD in Senegal in fisheries and aquaculture. Mm. And then I got an email from from them saying there is a job offer. And then I read it and I said, yeah, why not? Um, I can't do that. But at, at that moment, I was in charge of recruitment in a call center in Senegal and mm. doing my master at the same time. So I just decided to try. Okay. Were you... Her own marine mammal background when she started. Yeah. Wow, that's so cool. Were you interested in marine mammals at all? Yeah, I was interested in everything about the nature. So, yeah. <laughs> but I didn't know that we have dolphins in Senegal before that. So that was a big mm -hmm. start for me. Yeah. Oh, that's so cool. I have some younger colleagues in Myanmar who are the same. You know, yeah. had no idea that there were dolphins or porpoises just off the coast from where they grew up. Yeah, yes. so yeah. that's so cool that you got to learn about it. So what was the experience like for you, learning how to study marine mammals with no background, learning about these animals that you didn't realize were off the coast? How, how did that feel? Yeah, it's, it's crazy for me. It's like yeah. a movie. And wow. yeah, I feel like 
lucky to get in this in 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 AACF first and and second in the, to start when they start the project with the, the CCAHD. So I was lucky to to be involved, and I'm I'm learning too much every day, every time, every single survey. I'm 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 learning something new. Yeah. And now I'm doing my my master program in Algarve for the for the identification, and that's great. That's yeah. That's really great. Yeah. So I just want to interject a little story yeah. that on, on her, like right after she started, literally, I hired her in the end of June and we went on our first humpback dolphin survey like two weeks later. Wow. So, you know, I sort of threw her into this yeah. and we went out in the boat and the first day was really kind of windy and rough and we're in this small pirogue out there. And she thought we were going to die. She was sure we were going to drown. And she says, is this normal? And I'm like, yeah, pretty much. But you're not going to die today. I can promise you that. <laughs> and then literally like one day later when we saw dolphins, she was pretty much crying saying, oh, yeah, I can't believe this is my job. <laughs> People pay thousands of dollars to do this on vacation, and this is my job. That's so cool. Yeah. <laughs> I don't believe that. Yeah. Wow. So that's when I knew she was going to be a good fit. <laughs> yeah, that's a good sign. That's a really good sign. <laughs> and and Lucy, how did you start working in the region? Was it you just happened to be your PhD research, or did you have some other? Oh no. No, um, no, it's thanks to another marine mammal conference in uh, 2007 in San Diego. I, I had been working with mantis in Florida for a while. And um, um, I think the background of all that is that I was always impressed by people that I met who came from other parts of the world um to florida to you know for example build their telemetry gear at the usgs um federal manti lab you know there were people from brazil and um i don't know just all over you know there were dugong people coming and miriam marmontel coming and so you know i just thought wow these guys are trying to do something really cool on a shoestring budget and they're they're trying to learn about their mantis and so then fast forward to 2007, I was at the Marine Mammal Conference in San Diego and um, Martha Wells asked me if I wanted to come to lunch with her and her friend from uh, the Franciscana Dolphin Project, Martine Mendez. And I said, sure, okay, I'll come. And, <laughs> and Martine brought a guy and we didn't know who this guy was and he's sitting across the table and, you know, uh, somebody said, well, what do you do? And he, he literally said, well, I study humpback whales in Gabon, West Africa, but you know what I've got to find? i got to find a manatee biologist because they're supposed to be rare, but every day when we're leaving in the lagoon, we see these manatees and I just got to find people who count them or whatever they do. And I said, I, I do that. <laughs> I know someone who can help with that. <laughs> and he said, you know, so I, I'm trying to get my business card out of my wallet I kind of fumbled and the entire contents of my wallet went flying across the table and, and I was totally embarrassed I give this guy my card and um and I thought oh yeah okay I'll never hear from this person you know and then like 
six weeks later, I get an email from him saying, if you're serious and really want to do this, let's write a proposal. Wow. And I said, okay. And the next thing I know, it was next the following September, I'm on a plane to Gabon, wow. um, trying to dredge up my high school French. And um, I went there for two months to try to find some manatees. And that was my biggest fear that I was going to go all this way and I wasn't going to find one. But I did actually find them reasonably quickly. And um you know, realize there's just nothing being done in Africa right now. You know, Buddy Powell, who was my boss at the time, had done a lot of work um, in the 80s and 90s, but then he left and went back to Florida and was, you know, has a long-term project in Belize. And and he had trained a couple of people, but they were getting older and retiring. And so, you know, long story short, there was nobody really doing much. And uh and so I remember feeling like, wow, this is so amazing. There's so much opportunity, you know, just in yeah. the country of Gabon. But then sort of feeling, wow, this is overwhelming. And there's no way that I can really do all of this. We've got to find Africans who want to do this, you know. And and so the following year, um, just by, I don't know if it was luck or chance, but um uh, Dr. Afori Danson at the University of Ghana received an Earthwatch. Um, oh, yeah. He, he led an Earthwatch program um, to train Africans in African Nancy research, and they invited me to come train people. Um, so we did these two week workshops um, in 2008 and 2009. Um, coincidentally, I met this guy from Senegal in 2008 who was one of the trainees. Um, who invited me to come to Senegal the following winter because the Mantis got trapped behind an agricultural dam. Oh, wow. I came to Senegal and we rescued the Mantis. We put the first satellite tags on them. And long story short, I married the guy. Oh, <laughs> that's the <laughs> Okay. Um, so, yeah, so that's how that all happened. But anyway, I mean, the Donna workshops were amazing because I met people from all these different countries and their biggest, um, you know, and I'd ask them, what do you need? And they'd say, well, I feel so alone. I'm the only person in my country that wants to start something with manatees. I don't have any information. I don't have a way to communicate. And so I started a Yahoo group, actually, um, yeah. back in the day, where so that they, everybody could communicate and share information and share news. I mean, those are obsolete now with social yeah. media we don't really need them anymore but at the time it was mm -hmm. nice because there was a safe space where people could talk about you know or ask questions and um talk about what they wanted to do mm -hmm. um and so slowly but surely you know uh, once the Earthwatch program ended they they funded it for two years and then they said we're done and i said well no we're not done we have so many more people that we should be training and so i went out and started raising my own money Mm -hmm. um, to lead training workshops, which I did a few more, um, two week training workshops and then sort of realized, you know, two weeks is not really enough for people to have enough time to really learn the subject and, and be able to go back to their home country and do it as a career. I mean, you know, they, they need more time. And so I moved away from those and into more um, investing more time in graduate students mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, and also leading. Um, so then in 2013, I guess it was, um, I did a program called Mentor Manatee, which was a two year program, might have even been three, it was three actually. Mentor Manatee was three years. 
and we selected people from um, different countries who came every six months to a workshop. And in between those workshops, they had a little bit of money to do their own independent project with me guiding them. And mm. um, we talked about how to manage a budget and, you know, how to fundraise and how to do a scientific poster, how to do a presentation, um, things that their universities generally don't teach here. Um, and so those guys um, have been, you know, it was a great program, actually. Um, Sounds like it. And it was funded by U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, and we had eight people. And every single one of them are still in some kind of wildlife conservation, and most of them are still doing something relative to manatees. Um, one person is in Kenya working with elephants now, and one person was focused more on education programs than actual science research, but she was an amazing, actually, education person. Um, everyone else, I think, is still working with mantis, if I think about it. So that program was really successful, and now I sort of recreated that in Guinea um, for a two-year program that's con currently going where we're training Guinean fellows how to do manatee research. That's very cool. And it resonates a lot with um, the less extensive experience I've had in, in Myanmar, also trying to build up um, local research capacity, uh, I think, in, in a meaningful way, which is, is very hard to do uh, over a kind of a limited period of time. So I, I, I'll have to chat with you more in depth at some point about that, for sure. Um, and Diana, as, as someone who who is from the region, um, what was your experience like learning how to do research and, and now getting your master's? And what was it about AACF that helped you kind of build not just the skills, but also the interest and, and confidence to keep doing this work? Yeah, I would say that that would, um, sorry. <laughs> so at the beginning, that was just a job opportunity. Mm -hmm. But then when you are involved and then learning for new stuff, you think that I can do more that more than I'm, I'm doing now. And you're learning new stuff. Mm -hmm. And honestly, it's also, there is nothing, no one around to do it. So it's like I'm the only research assistant in Senegal doing marine mammal stuff. So it's like every day a new opportunity, new ideas from Lucy and from Jenna with the CCAHD also. Yeah, so it's capacity building and new career plan also. Mm. Yeah. And do you think that... Do everything. Do everything. <laughs> <laughs> do you feel that... Um, other young people in Senegal, uh, for example, is there an interest in in doing environmental work? Like, do do the youth have an idea of ever pursuing environmental work as a career? Yeah, sure. A lot of my friends on Facebook are all the time asking for opportunity mm -hmm. or most of job opportunity, but also the friends that I share the same class at the university mm -hmm. wants to do something also yeah. yeah there's a lot of people here yeah. who want to have jobs in conservation yeah. or um fisheries even um unfortunately there aren't a lot of jobs um, 
And the fisheries jobs with the government is really, we were just talking about this before we got on the call with you. You know, there, there are fisheries jobs, but they don't do anything. They sit at their desk all day, like pushing paper and there's not really anything meaningful happening, which is really actually tragic considering the state of fisheries in Senegal. But, um, you know, I mean, our, our little organization's already hired five people from the university program where we hired Jana from. She's mm -hmm. one of five. Well, one was a master's student. The other ones are all employees. Um, and, you know, there's every time Tomas and I give our lectures there, which is annually, we have at least three or four people come up to us saying, you know, can we do a master's degree or a PhD with you? Can we, I mean, we have way more interest than we can accommodate. And um, I wish that we could accommodate more, you know, that that's one, so, something we're working towards, but there is a lot of interest. And um, we recently also signed an MOU with the biology department um, at the same university, which is the biggest one in Senegal. And I mean, there's, I don't know how many students are in that university, but thousands upon thousands, yeah. 75,000 students, you know, and the biology department, they have the, the most well-respected veterinary school in West Africa there mm -hmm. um, and the school of fisheries. And there's so many young, enthusiastic people there, but not a lot of opportunity for them once they graduate. Yeah. And that's kind of, that was the motivation behind that question is this is something I've noticed is, uh, again, going back to especially Myanmar, so much interest among young people and wanting to do something for the environment, but not knowing where to start, not having a place where they can even really learn about it. And I suspect that in Senegal, there's more opportunities to, to, to learn about it in school, perhaps in Myanmar, the education system is pretty restricted. But um, even once we had our team of interns from my work there and they were enthusiastic and learned a lot. And unfortunately, there's not much for them to do afterward. And that's I, I, that's a heartbreaking part, you know, like in Senegal, having all this interest and enthusiasm and like nowhere to channel it. And I don't, it's a larger scale problem. I don't know how that would be fixed unless some of the, the large conservation organizations are somehow really able to step up their hiring power? I don't know. Well, we don't even have many of those here. Mm -hmm. And um, I mean, I I don't know. I, I might be quite jaded at this point, mm -hmm. but the larger NGOs often, mm, I don't see a lot of on the ground change happening with a lot of them mm -hmm. here in Africa. Um, there's a lot of overheads. There's a lot of money going to their main offices oh. and their expat staff rather than their African staff. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, the projects that, so they'll sometimes support smaller local NGOs and then take credit for all their work. So I, I just have a very jaded view of some of these larger NGOs. Um, I mean, obviously we're a small NGO, but I, I feel like the smaller NGOs that I know are doing more on the grounds mm -hmm. really than the larger ones um, because we're just getting our hands dirty and have more, you know, time in the field than a lot of these other ones. Um, yeah, yeah. Not to say that there aren't exceptions for sure, but, um, you know, I, I just don't know that I, I think larger NGOs are really the answer. I think that 
I wish that the government wildlife agencies would actually do the jobs that they are tasked with because there's so much that does not happen here. Um, enforcement of laws for wildlife, um, enforcement of protected areas, those are two huge things that we deal with every single day. Yeah. Um, and, you know, they they have the capacity and they just don't do it. So, um, oh, okay. To me, that's pretty much criminal at this point. Is it? So it's not a funding issue at that level. Well, they'll tell you it is, and oh. probably they don't get as much yeah. money from the government as some of the other, you know, mm -hmm. certainly like the Department of Defense or something. But okay. I'm sure that they all get decent budgets. Um, mm -hmm. but they don't. You know, there's there's a lot of corruption um that happens unfortunately and we're not the worst country by far i mean you don't want to go to nigeria at all but um <laughs> you know but it happens and i i for a perfect example you know we work a lot with marine protected areas um and national parks here in uh, senegal and we're basically constantly asked for money for our, you know, well, you must pay the boat fuel and we need you to pay our staff and we need this and that. And, you know, you're, you're a huge government agency and you're asking this dinky little NGO to yeah. pay these things that really are your responsibility. Um, and it's just how it is, you know, we, mm -hmm. if we want to get our work done, um, we have to contribute to those things. Mm -hmm. I don't mind if people actually do come and do the work. Um, and we have several uh, marine protected areas that are really enthusiastic and um, the people are very hardworking and those are the ones we tend to want to work with more. Right. Um, but yeah, it's, it's challenging for sure. Yeah, it sounds like it. And uh, I, again, I have no on the ground experience at all with West Africa. Um, so I'd love to hear more apart from government agencies not not implementing their their mandates. Uh, what what's the marine conservation context like out there? Uh, you've mentioned you know like uh, relatively sparse data and and hunting of of megafauna, but what's I know it's a big question, but <laughs> yeah, I mean here, yeah. Um. There's so much work to be done in the marine realm here because there's, you know, certainly, well, there's there's so much to, we still have to learn. Um, there's not a lot of study that happens in the marine realm. Um, there's certainly a lot of resource use and particularly overfishing. Um, but, you know, for example, our straining network has documented two marine mammal species that have never previously been documented in Senegal. Oh, no. Marine mammals. Big big. mammals. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, um, <laughs> and we're just about to publish that with a bunch of other um, data on things like bycatch that is a chronic problem here. But oh. my point is, you know, I think there's a lot of things that we don't know. Um, there's for example, a guitar fish that was documented from two specimens in um, a museum in Paris. They're from Mauritania, the country next door, not Senegal, but they're the only known specimens of that species. And so, mm. you know, we've tried to go around talking to fishermen, do you see this here? And they say yes, but 
a lot of these guys look alike. So the species that exist. So we, we need to see a, one that they caught. Mm -hmm. We haven't done that yet. But I guess my point is that there, there are species that could be going extinct before we even know that they're there. You know, okay. um, the black chin guitar fish is a critically endangered species that's being pulled up in every illegal beach scene in Senegal. No. We see them all the time. Um, and they people don't know, they don't care, they're going to eat it, they're going to eat up whatever they catch. Um, and they'll say, well, because their fish stocks are declining. Well, yes, they are, because no one's managing your fish stocks. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it's a very, it's a very challenging situation. I mean, I don't mean to be all doom and gloom, but it's really dire here. Um, mm -hmm. We literally just um, did an interview with Voice of America about the uh, monofilament nets, which are illegal, but still in wide use in Senegal. And um, one of the other people interviewed for the story was the, what was he, the director of the Ministry of Fisheries for Senegal, who literally said in the interview, well, we don't see the impact of monofilament net because we still have fish. Okay. Are you <laughs> So you're gonna wait till the last fish is gone and then you're gonna decide they're a problem? Oh no. So. Yeah, that's what we're mm -hmm. up against. So we just sort of try to find our bright spots of hope, yeah. <laughs> which um, the good news is that um, Senegal actually has, as far as I can tell, quite a healthy manatee population. In fact, we have two. We are one of the few countries that has two very distinct populations. The Senegal River population is totally distinct from the coastal population. Oh. And they will never meet because of a dam at the mouth of the Senegal River that um, oh, yeah. was built in 1986 that cut off their access to the sea. But that's fine. They have plenty of food. And um, in fact, the Senegal River habitat for them is longer than the state of Florida. So wow. um, they have they have plenty of territory there. Um, and then the humpback dolphins is another huge bright spot for us because we believe that we may have the largest population of the species here in Senegal. Um, wow. And that, that has to do with the mangrove habitat that they live in. And um, they're, you know, we find them 15, 20 kilometers inland um, up what? in these mangrove channels. Yeah, they don't live in the wow. sea. We now they have been in the past documented in the ocean, but we are not currently documenting them in the ocean. It doesn't mean they never go there, but we're just not finding them there. I mean, the, the population here, um, we when we go out to do photo ID, for example, we see groups of 35 animals, um, humpback dolphins, yeah. So, in countries like Benin and Congo, they there may be 15 to 30 animals overall in the population, and we're seeing like two groups of 30 in a single day. And then we know that, you know, in this large Delta Saloon landscape where they are, that we're certainly not seeing them all because they're, you know, the previous week we've seen another bunch of large groups in the southern part, for example. Mm -hmm. Um, so Jana's job, which is a great one, is that she's developing the first photo ID catalog for the species. Wow. And this is not only exciting for Senegal, but it's also going to be the template and the model for all the other African countries that haven't started yet. So mm -hmm. she's setting that up and she's had some great um, instruction and mentorship from 
um, Gianna Minton and oh, Emma Longton um, at, at University of St. Andrews um, have been helping her to do that. So um, for us, it's really exciting because we're starting to recognize individual animals and, um, you know, we're starting to feel like in a few years we might have some life history information about them. Um, but again, the numbers are big <laughs> compared to other countries. That's fantastic. So, yeah. yeah. <clears throat> and so are the mangroves in pretty good condition in Senegal? In that place, they are. There's very there's some villages, but there's not any large cities. There's not any industry. Um, it's a world heritage site. There's a lot of ecotourism, a lot of sport fishing. So it's um, a place that you know Senegal wants to preserve um, as a natural area. It's a Ramsar site. I mean, it's got every designation you can think of. <laughs> so within within Delta Saloon, there's one national park and what is there four or five yeah. four marine protected areas mm. so the, almost everything in there is under some sort of protection um and i will say that although i feel like the marine protected areas could be slightly better enforced um they they are reasonably well enforced because they're of manageable size in that area oh interesting okay and also because um, the conservators that we work with are um, motivated and they're they're really interested in the wildlife and uh, just really good people to work with. So, yeah. yeah. Um, so, I mean, I, I feel like we are so fortunate because this kind of um, this, the dolphins living in this mangrove habitat is quite different from the other countries where they live in near shore ocean in very rough dynamic waves. And it's hard for people to, they either have to walk down the beach or they have to be out in a boat in the waves trying to get photos. And, um, you know, we are in these flat calm waters and wow. dolphins come right up to the boat. And oh um, <laughs> we just have the best of all worlds here. And um, so, you know, we, we know that there probably is some bycatch that's happening. Um, we have had a few reports of carcasses, and so we 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 need to sensitize people that, you know, they have to protect these guys. They're critically endangered. The thing about that area where the dolphins are is that they're so common, and there's so many, that people there are just like, oh, yeah, the dolphins. Like, they don't know that they're special. Oh, they yeah. Just, they just think they're the dolphins. And right. so who cares if a few die in a net? And we're like, no, 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 no. These are like the top five, one of the top five species in the world, um, which doesn't seem to make an impression on people. Very much. <laughs> well, that brings me to my next question. I'd love to hear. And I'm sure between the two of you, you probably have different experiences. What is it like talking with the communities and, and engaging with the communities on these issues? Yeah, that was not easy, but that depends on when you are. That was easier, for example, to talk to fishermen in Jifer. They are more in this part that in the inside the Depsalum Delta. Mm. They they know more about the humpback dolphin oh, and yeah. they know it's protected. They know what is what bycatch is. 
But when you go in the villages and you talk to people that never go to school, they doesn't know they don't know the difference between dolphin in the mangrove and in the ocean. Some mm -hmm. of them are only fishing in the mangroves. They just don't know which kind of dolphin we have, what is bycatch. And even if they see that it's difficult to for them to tell you we are saying that and you will never know if they are eating it or not. So mm -hmm. the kind of information that you can have depends on when you are and who you are talking talking to. Mm. Do they seem yeah. do they seem interested in like do they seem to like the animals? Yeah, very, very interested. Mm. Yeah, sorry. Yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. They seem very interested and a lot of them want to know more about that. That's so, so cool. Yeah, that's yeah. yeah, I think bycatch is a really hard concept here because you go out, you fish, and you eat what you catch. Right. And right. so um you know, we we do school programs here for primary and secondary schools. And what, the first question we ask is, what is a protected species? And they don't know. Um, the kids have no idea. And so we have to explain to them it's protected because it's in danger and we want to keep them for the future. But, you know, these are the same kids that, unfortunately, you know, we do school programs and they're so enthusiastic. And then the next weekend, their parents tell them, go out and pull that beach stain because you'll get, you know, the equivalent of $2 a day. And they're out there yeah. doing, you know, pulling an illegal beach stain. So until we can solve a poverty issue, you know, that that's that's a huge problem is that people can know they're protected, but they they, they need to eat and they're going to eat. And, um, you know, so... I think fortunately the dolphins may not get as caught caught as often. It doesn't seem like we're seeing lots of bycatch with them. Um, sea turtles, huge, huge problem here um, with not only bycatch, but targeted sea turtle fisheries um, and manatees a little bit, but I think manatees are accidental for the most part. People know they're protected, uh, but if they catch one, they'll eat it. So um you know, if we go into a classroom here in, in Joa, where we are, and we ask 50 primary school kids, how many of you have eaten a sea turtle? Every single hand will go up. Mm -hmm. And if we ask them how many have eaten a manatee, five to eight hands will go up. Oh, okay. So they do, but, um, you know, anyway, we, we know that education is a long-term investment. Yeah, and that, you know, we're doing it because we hope that in 20 years, people will care more and not want to eat these guys. But um, for the humpback dolphins, it's more urgent than that. And we have to really be more vigilant. Mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. But like I say, so far, knock on wood, you know, we've gotten a few reports of carcasses, but not levels that are unsustainable sustainable at this point that as far as we can tell I mean obviously we don't want to lose any but we we've had like maybe three or four carcass reports in five years so okay okay wow yeah, <laughs> yeah. um and I so I've only ever worked in countries that I'm not from so I've, I always enjoy learning from people who do work in their local country. So Deanna, I'd love to know, especially since you've learned so much about the animals that are off the coast, uh, do you feel a kind of like national pride? Does that make sense? A kind of yeah, natural of patriotism? <laughs> yeah, 
Yeah. Yeah, of course. I feel that um yeah, mostly when my own family are asking about my job, friends, people on Facebook. Yeah. yeah, at the other day I was telling Lucy, now people are coming to Facebook and asking for advice for what they could study when they when they get the university. So it's 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 just great and I want to go far and far as far as possible. Yeah. Oh, that's fantastic. It seems like you're on the right path. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We'll see. yeah. Yeah. She's a good advocate. And really, I mean, um, so, you know, I had another assistant before Jana, And so she, I can't call her the very first marine mammal biologist from Senegal, but he is no longer working with marine mammals, sadly. Okay. Um, so, and she's certainly the first female marine mammal mm. biologist from Senegal. And I think it's really important for young kids to see that you can have a job in conservation. Yeah. You can have a job protecting wildlife. Um, and, you know, I, I just hope that we can inspire other people. I mean, we certainly like, if I won the lottery, that'd be great because we'd sure have a lot of way to give people jobs. I mean, there's so much to yeah. do here. Yeah. Yeah, fingers. I mean, I've been kind of hoping for the lottery for myself, but I'll I'll share some some wishes with you. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, that's such a common problem is, uh, and I I agree with your earlier statement. I think the small NGOs are the ones that are doing the real work, but they're also the ones that have a harder so, time yeah. getting that yeah. reliable flow of resources. So um, yeah. I really hope that changes somehow, something about the structure of how conservation is funded that, that needs to yeah, change. Yeah, I think people, they give to the large NGOs because they've heard the name and, you know, but they don't realize how little work on the ground actually happens, at least from where I sit. I mean, it could be different in other parts of the world that I'm not aware of. And as I say, I'm, I don't want to stereotype because you know, I've met some fantastic people yeah. from working for those organizations on the ground. But what I see is this huge disparity between them and their management um, in the, the larger home office, um, taking the biggest piece of the pie. And, you know, the people on the ground aren't really making very much money and are working with small resources. They might as well be working for a small NGO, frankly, because they're the resources they get are are small, but um, I don't want to say yeah. too much because some of those big NGOs hire me in my consulting work, but I echo a lot of those feelings and it's very sensitive to who the project manager is and, you know, the, the given country context. But yeah, I, um, yeah. the smaller NGOs are more responsive. I think they're more respectful and more inclusive of people who are actually from the area, I think usually. And uh, yeah, I'm really glad that you have AACF there and that you're all doing the work you're doing. Thanks. Yeah. Well, you know, like we we try and um, I've always felt very strongly that people from the countries where we work really should be the people doing the work. I mean, I generally don't go, for example, to education programs. Um, I want them to see Senegalese people standing up at the front of the room giving that presentation. Mm -hmm. um, John, I was just talking about the interview surveys that we did for um, the humpback dolphins and I didn't go. That was led by Jana and another Senegalese colleague of ours that went and did that work because I want them to speak the local language and I want them to, you know, first of all, I don't think they get 
uh, fully honest answers with me there. They always, they're going to say what they think I want to hear. Um, and, you know, secondly, they need to see Senegalese people leading this work. So, um, absolutely, and they are, it's, it's basically their projects. It's, I just uh, manage the incoming money. <laughs> yeah. And I, I mean, that's exactly, I mean, as an, <clears throat> someone who was raised American and I've only worked in other countries, I was thinking in an ideal world, someone like me wouldn't be doing this. Uh, you know, like you want to try to fade it out so that there's not as much need for, or that local researchers are already doing the research and, and having those opportunities so that an American coming in is more of an anomaly than the norm. Well, or just build a legacy for that to be, you know, I mean, that's that's something that's happened in the last few years. You know, Tomas and I started AACF as sort of a way to do our work. And then along the way somewhere, we realized that we want this organization and its work to continue when we hopefully retire someday. <laughs> and so um, that changes your perspective a bit because you have to think about how are we going to make it sustainable over the long term? How are we going to raise an endowment, for example, um, to sustain? this organization and who are we going to turn it over to and you know i would like to turn it over to a, an african person to run it it's the african aquatic conservation fund mm -hmm. um that you know i would like the next person to um just be someone who is african so um i mean tomas is african but he also wants to retire someday yeah. <laughs> so um you know, and I think we have a really good team here and hope I hope that we can build on that and keep, you know, keep a long term good team so that we can just keep doing what we're doing. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Um, do you guys have an extra 10 minutes? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. OK, sorry, because um, I wanted to throw in another question, which is along those lines of, you know, wanting to build a sustained organization and, and transfer it over to more and more local leadership. Part of that is having access to the international conservation community, which it sounds like AACF does already. But one thing I've thought a lot about is how accessible or not international conferences are, international publishing, et cetera. So I'd, I'd love to hear either of your thoughts on what are some of the challenges uh, and opportunities for making those links stronger between African researchers and the international, very Western dominated community? Yeah, that's tough because I think like, for example, Senegal is a Francophone country and most of the literature is in English. Um, so there's small challenges like that. But I would say in terms of conferences, I think one great thing that came out of the pandemic is the fact that most conferences, including the Society for Marine Mammalogy, will now always be hybrid. Um, we've crossed that bridge and we're not going back because, in fact, at the last conference, we had many more attendees online than we did in person. Mm -hmm. And as a conservationist, you know, not not spending the carbon credits on your plane trip and things like that are also important to us. So um, I think that the world has become a bit more accessible because of the pandemic. Mm -hmm. um, I still, though, see that 
we need to have more support for colleagues in developing countries. Um, you know, there's very few marine mammal biologists in Africa overall, except for places like South Africa mm -hmm. um, and maybe a little bit more in East Africa, but West and Central are highly neglected. And um, I hope that we can create more opportunities. I'm actually, I'm the chair of the International Relations Committee for SMM and um, okay. we're working on a program um, myself and Ed, Eduardo Secchi um, to have a, a almost like a scholarship program where people can come to different, like come to our organization and do an internship or come to um, Aristide Taco Cam's organization in Cameroon to do an internship where we um, offer these opportunities for Africans to come learn from us and our what, what our organizations are doing um, so that they can then go home. So it's sort of a different kind of mentorship than a traditional graduate student, but I like it. I mean, we we have an intern program here. Um, most of our interns so far, though, have been people from other countries, Western countries. Okay. And um, we do have, we've had a couple of Senegalese interns, but I'd like to develop it more for Senegalese interns and um, other African interns, because they're the ones that really need it. Um, mm -hmm. And need to be able to, you know, if they're that excited to do the work, then we should be empowering them so they can go home and do it um, right. in their own countries. But, uh, you know, so I think there are definitely challenges. I mean, it's 2023 and Marine Mammal Science, the journal is just now thinking about uh, having a translation option for non-native English speakers in oh, English wow. and Spanish. Oh. And we're going to do that. And I, I think that's fantastic. But you know, think how long that took. It's 2023. I know. You know, and so yeah. it's only been in English. And in fact, the journal itself will only be in English. But for we're talking about having, um, I think the abstracts will potentially be in either French or Spanish and English. And then there will be writing help um, for people who are non-native speakers. But, oh, yeah. you know, I hope we can get to a place where there will be actual translation to other languages, you know, so that francophone speakers, for example, or Spanish speakers have more opportunities to yeah. read that, that kind of literature. Yeah. But Diana, how many languages do you speak then? You speak English and French and... Wolof. And Wolof, my native language. Okay, so you have three languages. <laughs> yes. Wow. But two years ago, I was not, I wasn't speaking English fluently like that. Mm. I had to, yeah, learn with, we'll see. Oh, well, English was not bad though. When okay. when I when I interviewed for her position, one of the requirements was English fluency because um, not not only for me, but you know, interacting with our colleagues who don't speak French. And Jana was the only person who made it through the entire interview in English. Everybody oh. else told me that they had good English, and then they didn't understand my questions in English. So. Um, so yeah, but no, her English is great and yeah. probably has yeah. its own ways, but <laughs> <laughs> well a lot of it is is practice and confidence yeah. too. Yeah, sure. Yeah. But I just I want to say I appreciate that you speak th three languages well enough to operate in a professional setting. Oh, thank that's, you. Thank you. That's really impressive well, to me. And she went to Portugal for her masters, but I don't oh. think you learned Portuguese. <laughs> no, I didn't have time. <laughs> Yeah, when you're doing your master's, you have other things you're focusing on. Yeah. <laughs> I think the classes were taught in English, so yeah. 
Yeah, so many ways. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Except the time that the teacher forgot that there is other people in the classroom oh. and they start speaking Portuguese for a while and then we just say hi, we are here. <laughs> <laughs> oh my goodness. Um, yeah. And you can tell me if this is too personal, Deanna, but some of my friends in Asia who study marine mammals, their families are like, what are you doing? What are you doing with your life? <laughs> they don't understand. Do you have, or it sounds like, you know, you said, you mentioned earlier, your friends and family are very curious and interested, um, but yeah, is it as kind of a strange career for them? <laughs> yeah, even before AACF, when I, when I decided to do agronomy at the university, that learning aquaculture and fisheries mm. and by that time they were they were think people were thinking that i'm crazy because they didn't understand why i decided to learn that oh really and then yeah but with acf is different because now i can show what i'm doing instead of explaining mm. i just can show you what i'm doing and i think I, i'm starting to change their their mentality but at the beginning that was not Okay. That was not easy, yeah, to make <laughs> yeah. them understand, yeah. I think they probably just thought, oh, this is some crazy expat thing, <laughs> and lucky her she got this job with these crazy expats, but, <laughs> like, they don't they don't understand how someone can get paid to study a dolphin. Yeah. That's just beyond. Yeah, and sometimes people think also, I'm all the time on vacation. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, right, yeah. <laughs> they think, they, they think <laughs> me, too. <laughs> Well, yeah, people I'm, constantly ask me here how my vacation is going, and I'm like, I'm not on vacation. Trust me. <laughs> That's funny. Yeah, but all I'm, white people are always on vacation here um, because they don't have to work because we're all multimillionaires, according right. to every everyone in Senegal. Exactly. But you know, my husband has a similar story with turtles to John's story. You know, I mean, he fell in love with turtles, and um, his father was like, no. No, you're getting a real job. You cannot make money with turtles. Mm -hmm. um, this is crazy. And so he went to the university and studied agronomy and um, but ended up, you know, starting the, the turtle village here. And I think it took his dad, though, years and years to feel like, OK, my son has a worthwhile career because he just mm -hmm. thought this was a silly little hobby um, mm -hmm. that he was doing. Yeah. So. <laughs> well, I mean, I know like some of my in, in Myanmar, the, the village that we base the boat surveys out of the village head who you have to get permission for pretty much everything. Right. He was always not giving our team a hard time, but he was just very confused. Like, what is this that you're doing? Is this a job? Yeah. Just going yeah. out and following the dolphins yeah. Like, you want to hire a fisherman to not fish and to take you to see dolphins. Yeah. What is this? Yeah. <laughs> Wow. Yeah, same thing here. <laughs> well, Very similar. Well, Deanna, I'm glad your family is starting to uh, better understand what you're doing. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Thank you both so much. I'm sorry we went a little over the time, but I just was so interested to hear from you. Oh. It's funny, most of my interviews, I go in with a very targeted topic, but with you two, I was like, I just want to know everything about West Africa and what you do, just simple, simple okay. questions. <laughs> so thank you. I really enjoyed learning, um, learning from you, and um, I hope we have other opportunities to, to chat and interact because I really love yeah. everything that you were saying, and it only makes me want to come to West Africa more. So well, there's a room here for you if you want to come anytime. Okay. All right. So. Fantastic. Yeah. <laughs> Love that. And so nice to meet you, Diana.
Thank you. Nice to meet you too. All right. Well, I hope we'll, yeah, well, I hope we'll see you in person at some point. I don't know when. Um, yeah. We're going to try hard to go to the Perth conference. So, oh, yeah. Um, I know that's a long way for a lot of people, but um, yeah, I'm not on the conference circuit so much these days, especially SMM doesn't do human dimensions well, but at the same time, yeah. that's another reason that it's good to go. But yeah, yeah, hopefully, yeah. yeah. Yeah, and um, I hope you don't have too many strange strandings. Um, well, they're interesting too, but well, totally I mean, as um, you know, so we're partnering with Smithsonian for, and they come. They're actually coming in two weeks, and they come once a year for a stranding survey. Charlie Potter and Michael McGowan, which oh, okay, really just is the gift that keeps giving because we love them. And yeah, um, again, that's thanks to a Marine Mammal Conference where they heard my talk about the Senegal Stranding Network and how we were running out of money and they basically oh. said we're going to come and help you awesome. <laughs> um so they do um but as michael michael always says you know well i don't want anything to die but if it does i'd like and he lifts yeah. up a bunch of specimens that he wants so the wish list. i mean yeah. <laughs> we we always we learn something new every time and we have these very different surveys every time so um you know, we're really happy to be one of the only organizations in all of West Africa doing regular beach surveys. And um, while it's, you know, yes, we're documenting things that have died, but we're also learning about what species are here. We're learning about taxonomy. We're learning about populations through Michael's genetics work. Um, we're just seeing what's out there. And, um, you know, we're also learning from Charlie Potter, who has to be hands down one of the world's best taxonomic geniuses for marine mammals. And um, I mean, the guy can walk up to a whale skull and tell you from the ear bone what species it is. <laughs> Are you kidding me? Um, so we're, we're really fortunate that way, so. That's wonderful. Well, I hope that visit goes well and I hope you both keep well too. Yeah, you too. Well, thanks Tara. Thank you. Take care. Bye. Bye. So I want to thank Lucy and Diana for that wonderful conversation. I don't know how they managed to do all that they're involved in, but I'm grateful that they and the whole AACF team do. I do want to briefly highlight that although the international conservation community, including the Society for Marine Mammalogy, has a lot of work to do toward being truly diverse and inclusive, this interview showed how many marine mammal experts from the global north are very generous with their time, expertise, and other resources, and it's a wonderful community on the whole. And if groups like AACF get the support they need and deserve, um, and can continue to do the great work and expand the great work that they're doing, it will be a much more vibrant and diverse community in the future. As ever, thank you for listening, especially given my very erratic posting schedule. If you feel moved to, please like, subscribe, review, positively, please, uh, comment, share, etc. I hope you're all doing well, and I have a very, let's say, haunting, special little episode brewing for this Halloween. Alright everyone, take care. Jala he, 
โลดาโรอาลอปยอชวนสยาด้วยเปสวนเนตุปยองเนยาผุเซลโลเลเซยลันเนลาปาจิเยกงโกซองเนตุลาด้วยไนเชลโลเมยาเปยาเรมาตุ